Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, I've got a stack body. Uh, it's Terrific. actually, it's not my own work. It's from John Williams in Wrexham, although I've, I've added something to it. And uh, and John has been going through a load of old Melody Makers Club calendar from the 6th of November, 1971. And uh, he says there's loads of recognisable names of course, Atomic Rooster were playing at the Starlight Rooms in Boston for 60p. Judas Priest were playing the Temple for 60p. And Pato uh, were playing 1832 Windsor for 40p. That's a bargain. Anyway, he's got here's a bunch of other names, all of which are kind of roughly kind of pigs and pork related. Okay, Ali, are you ready? So, and I've got to guess, how many of these are fictitious? Or I've just got to work out the fictitious ones. I got five. I got five. There's one fictitious one, one ringer. Okay. Okay. Go on. Here we go. Pigsty. Pigsty. Fat grapple. Fat grapple. Hog. Hog. Making bacon. Making bacon. And life blood. Spelt bell B L U D. Pigsty, fat grapple, hog, making bacon, and lifeblood. Which one, Mark Ellen, is the ringer? Well, I'm fairly confident that it's not making bacon because making bacon was a kind of hilarious uh, sort of student poster, wasn't it, at the time? So it won't be that, I'm sure. I don't think it's hog either because hog is a classic kind of 70s rock band name. Uh, Lifeblood is just not quite characterful enough to have been made up as a ringer, so I think it must be real. So we're down to Fat Grapple and Pigsty. Fat Grapple is just, it's so like kind of, um, you know, it's like, uh, there were loads of bands with names like that, weren't there? Fat Grapple. Crabby Appleton, it's that kind of thing. I think that's, I think that's the, I think, I think Pigsty is real. I think that's the, that's the fictitious one, is Fat Grapple, because it's just simply brilliant. Well, you're wrong, and John Williams and I win because uh, there is there was pigsty, there was fat grapple, there was hog, there was life blood, but what there wasn't was making bacon. No, which no. Is, is you correctly identified. I think I'm right in saying used to be a, a lewd illustration on on the front of a t-shirt. It was where you it was would a see two pigs having sexual congress. <laughs> And the the hilarious uh, slogan was making bacon, making bacon, which is meant to no, kind of 
terrify was, old age pensioners when you walk down the street. It probably we were, did. I don't we know. Were, we were so easy to amuse in those I days, know. weren't we? Okay, we were. so I win that one. You win. You win. Okay. Now, look, i got one too, which is a reprise of, of, of a sort, actually, because Moose Alain, the wonderful illustrator and humorist and cartoonist, I'm sure you're aware of him, who I follow on Twitter, was he was just tweeting some pictures of um, of just illustrations he's done for places in southwest England, like Dowlish Ford and Halesbury Plunkett. And I remember we once did, this is a long time ago, we once did Cotswold Village or Jamaican DJ. Oh, right. And I thought we should do a little reprise. So I give you, Dave, a um, quaintly titled place in Somerset uh, or venerable reggae musician. Okay? Ten yeah. of them. Some are reggae musicians, some are places in Somerset. Right. Okay, the first one is Nymphnit Throbwell. That is Nymphnit Throbwell. I give in already. I don't know. Nymphnit Throbwell. It's a, well, it's a place on the on the western edge of Bath. Very good. There Very you go. Up. Okay. Hinton Bluelit. Sorry, Hinton Bluet. Let's get that right. My Hinton dad blew it. My dad was stationed there during the war. No, I've no idea. <laughs> go on. It's five miles north of Wells. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Glaister Fagan. Glaister Fagan. I've got to guess that's a reggae musician. He's a member of Matumbi. Yeah. Lo- Loxley Gishy. Fantastic. Yeah. Loxley Gishy. Reggae musician. Guitarist in the Cimarrons. Very good. Okay, I think we've got a few more. Leafy Somerset Hamlets or legendary dubmeisters. Sock Dennis. <laughs> that's got to be a reggae musician. No, that's a, a historic manor in the parish of Ilchester. Can you tell me the way to Sock Dennis? Sock Dennis. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, no, it's a good... we're, we're playing Sock Dennis in the cricket next weekend. That's... <laughs> or anyone right. anyone for Sock Dennis, in fact, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, curry Mallet. Hurry Mallet. Oh, Somerset. Yeah, seven miles east of Taunton. Gallimore right. Sutherland. That is a reggae musician. Yeah, sure. right. It's a yeah. guitarist of the Gladiators. Milton Hamilton. <laughs> I rented a cottage there once. He's a singer in Third World. Oh, of course he is. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Burton Pinsett. <laughs> reggae musician. No, no, it's six miles west of Somerton. And my favourite, actually, is Huish Champflower. Wow. That's Huish Champflower, just tuning up his massive amplifier. What did it go on? Get, I give it. It's, it's 10 miles north of Wellington near Blackdown Hills. <laughs> so there we are. It's good, That's isn't it? brilliant. It works. Brilliant. It works. So if anybody's got any ideas for um, for uh, Stackwaddy games, please send them to the send usual address. In whatever that usually is. They seem to find us one way or another, don't they? They do. So, uh, they're very welcome. Yeah, they're very welcome. What do we have to talk about? I guess Roger Waters. Roger Waters is a very curious show at the London Palladium. You read about this. But Roger Waters is just so dependable, isn't he? He never lets you down. Last week we were talking about all the grim things he'd done, but this was hilarious. I just I saw this too. Yeah, it was a, the audience. He was playing the Palladium. The audience were expecting his version of Dark Side of the Moon. But instead, for the first, I think, hour, they got him reading from his unpublished book, the title of which supposedly is Dark Side of the Moon, Memoirs of a Lanky Prick. And uh, I've got a little quote here. He said, read out pages of notes about his pets, including a duck called Donald, 
which he discussed for 20 minutes, leaving onlookers stunned. Waters went on to impersonate the likes of Bruce Forsyth and Max Bygraves in an attempt to deliver some stand-up comedy. He reportedly told his audience to fuck off. That's good, isn't it? And the show, the show ended an hour later than it was meant to, which, of course, you know, when you get to our age, that's a bad thing. It's... If you're 18 and the show extends by an hour, you think, fantastic, value for money. This is brilliant. It's I'll a... walk home. But, you know, but anybody, it, 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 everyone was massively inconvenienced and horrified by it, actually. Because as we've discovered through our Word in Your Ear evenings, the definition of a, of a popular evening out for people over a certain age is it starts early and it finishes soon afterwards. That's basically... (laughs) Almost immediately afterwards. (laughs) After they've played your two favourite songs. Yes, nobody nobody thanks you for something going on for an hour too long, particularly a Roger Waters show. Do you know what the thing that really offended me most about this? And it's difficult because there are many things that you could be offended by. There was a wide variety of, um, of elements there. I felt reading your unpublished memoirs from your laptop. From your laptop. It's probably the idlest possible excuse for entertainment that's ever been laid before the public. Well, so this is from unpublished. Your, so- from your bloody laptop. Yeah. Come on. It doesn't matter. You know, if you were Oscar Wilde, that would be dull. But you're not. You're Roger Waters. You're Roger Waters. (laughs) For goodness sake. It's also unpublished, so it indicates that they're probably the very first things that he's thought of that he's hammered down, which in the normal scheme of things, 98% of which will will be, you know, ejected, will be abandoned. But no, Roger Waters opinion of his own worth is so enormous that he's happy to entertain people for one hour with a load of kind of poorly thought through jottings. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is genuinely breathtaking that there is nobody in a position to intercede and say, you know, that thing you're thinking of doing tonight, just don't do it. Please, (laughs) please, please don't do it at all. You know, but but reading from your laptop, I don't care who you are, you know, it's not interesting. And it set me to thinking, you know, who are the only, who are the rock stars that should be allowed, licensed to actually entertain the audience with their spoken words? Who are they, Mark? Go on. Who are they? I got one nomination. And um, I can only, I can only think of one. Shall I tell you my nomination? You mean the spontaneously off the top of their head? Well, you see, there's the fundamental point. Anybody who's doing it spontaneously off the top of their head yeah. is fooling themselves that it's going to work because what we know is it's all preparation. Doesn't it? It doesn't matter whether it seems prepared. Yeah, or you can pass it off got, as, as spontaneous. Exactly, it's, it's got to be prepared. You know, whatever it is. And so, the only person I've ever seen who can do this and do it reliably, brilliantly, is Bruce Springsteen. And clearly, Bruce Springsteen works at, it at home and works at it like crazy. It's all bits. 
It's all bits he's done before. And he takes this bit and he puts it together with that bit and, and a third bit and he builds it into something. He's not just setting off <laughs> into uncharted territory, you know what I mean? And he wouldn't dream of reading anything. He probably wouldn't read other bits of paper, let alone a laptop for crying laptop. out loud. That, is the, that really is the ultimate that, insult. Absolutely. Because you haven't even bothered to print it out, you idle sod. But he's you got, know. Bruce Bridges has a very, very rigorous idea of what constitutes entertainment, isn't he? Everything he does is pared down, isn't it? And as you say, thought through and and uh, and tried out and absolutely. tinkered with and tuned up. It's, it's it's like the thing it most resembles is a stand-up comedian. Yeah. A stand-up comedian that they talk about their their act as a series of bits. And this this leads to that. And it has to climax like that. And I have to do it in exactly that fashion. Yeah. Otherwise it won't work. I won't try to punchline, the applause line, then you got the topper. And yeah. the topper. You make another joke over the top, and then a third joke over the top of the second one. People have worked out that stuff in front of crowds. They haven't just set off to do it for the first time. You know, well, everything has the first time, I suppose. But anyway, Roger Waters. Roger what, Waters also what, at the Palladium sixty what? years ago. Today, I think the day oh. we're recording this, October the thirteenth, was the Beatles. Was the, it was the night that people claimed that the, the concept of Beatlemania was invented, wasn't it? Yeah, when they played the Palladium and the reaction by the crowd, and they had to try and get them to calm down because they couldn't play, and the reaction outside when they left the venue, etc. That's when the papers kind of, you know, coined the expression Beatlemania. On the bill, compare Bruce Forsyth with his ever popular audience participation game Beat the Clock. Uh, beat American the balladeer Brooke Benton, yeah, British comic and singer Des O'Connor. Well, that's a good night out, surely. Is that all? Is that the full extent of the bill? I, I think it was. Maybe there was no other musical act. I don't know. Actually, do, do you remember Beat the Clock? Which was I the, don't. Do you know? No, is that a whole segment. We didn't get telly till nineteen sixty six, so I missed out on an awful lot of oh. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I had a deprived childhood. Did you hear? Did you hear that Kennedy was shot? Do you know about that? And we did to, hear about it. Went yeah. to the moon as well. Oh, yeah. that was a bit later. That was later. Um, but uh, they used to have one segment of Sunday Night at London Palladium used to be Beat the Clock, one whole 10-minute segment. Basically, you used to get a husband and wife from the audience to do stupid, pointless games with very low-tech equipment. Absolutely extraordinary. I was looking at one the other day from the early 60s. And thinking, my God, we were easily entertained at those days. How did anybody tolerate that kind of thing? Is that what kind of things did they do? Oh, just, oh, just, you know, can you toss this ping pong ball into this basket and all that? I mean, you wouldn't believe how kind of, you, you, an average, a party of four year olds would tear you limb from limb nowadays <laughs> if you propose, if you propose entertaining them in that kind of fashion. But uh, no, it worked in those days. So compared to that, the Beatles doing From Me to You and Twist and Shout or whatever was um, extraordinary entertainment. And, of course, they were back there about a month later, weren't they, a Royal, um, Royal Command performance. Royal Command performance, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it was a month later, I think, by which time they were just massive already, weren't they? Just, I wish the Palladium show was on film because you can see, you can, you can watch the uh, Royal Variety show on um, 
on, on YouTube, but you, the Palladium isn't available. I think. Oh, it's probably just been lost. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, but you know the reason they got but that, that Ed Sullivan booked them uh, to appear on his show uh, in February in the following year, and when the famous night that they broke America was all because he'd heard that you know there were all these groups were happening in Britain, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and all these people. But he wanted the one that the Queen liked, because that was the way that the story had made his way to the States. You know, that mop tops get get royal seal of approval. You know what I mean? So he's saying, Which okay, we, these I, days would be the worst possible recommendation. It's like when it's like when prime ministers do their kind of desert island discs, and you know, no matter how much thought and effort they put into it, you know, whatever whatever groups they nominate, their careers could be slightly tarnished by it. You know, yeah, your heart would sink, wouldn't it, if a, if a prime minister, Prince Charles's favourite, there's King Charles's favourite act. Oh, oh God, favourite Coldplay track. No, it's um, it's not going to work, is it? The Word Podcast, prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We have various things upcoming. Well, we just put out, actually, a couple of podcasts. We did Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen. He was terrific, actually. Really lovely, interesting uh, character. And uh, really a really well-written book. Two, two books, two Sunday Times bestsellers. And um, lots of good stories about just growing up in Liverpool uh, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. School days, brilliant description of school days. Absolutely, he was extraordinary. And we did, um, the other day, we did Nick Banks of Pulp. It was great, wasn't he, Dave? Very, he was really, very good indeed. Really, such a good talker. He's so Nick. upbeat and funny and uh, I just, I'd express himself so well. It's really lovely stories, just stuff about, you know, what it's like being in a group that takes ultimately 15 years to have any kind of success. He joined after seven years. He's had seven years waiting for them to be successful and what that felt like when it happened and the terrible crushing horror of being number two in the charts, which is simultaneously thrilling and also ghastly to be no, not number one when number one is Robson and Jerome. Yeah. And a very good account of Jarvis's um, moment at the Brit Awards versus uh, Michael Jackson, which is really, he made a really good point. He said it was really good for the band really bad for Jarvis and the effect that all that had on Jarvis's life. So he was good. And we are doing next week, we're doing uh, Simon Spence. He's talking about his book about uh, immediate, uh, the immediate record label. Um, and mostly about Andrew Lou Golden, which would well, be interesting, wouldn't it? That's a story. Lou Golden, isn't it? <laughs> still My is, isn't he? he still is Andrew Lou Golden. Still with us. Still um, with us. And, um, I once spent uh, oh god I once spent a very interesting few days in where was it Stockholm with Andrew Oldham a few years ago me and my wife we were both on we were both booked on the same conference and um, and so we had a couple of meals out terribly entertaining Jeff. god that must have been fun <laughs> what did you talk about just absolutely everything you know he's just um, you know, indiscreet. Music, I hope. Yeah, well, music business is not wild. Desperately full of people with a kind of wide range of interests, but he has a wide range of interests. You know, no doubt about it. I don't remember. He told me all kinds of things, and one of the things that stuck in my head. I'm sure I've said this before. Is the um, he used to go and see his mother when he was like eighteen, nineteen. He used to go and see his mother on Sunday. She lived in Hampstead. 
And, uh, and he says that was the days when you went, you know, to sign your lunch with your mother and then there was nothing else to do. It was Tony Hancock, Britain, you know, Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Home, that kind of thing. And um, and then Peter Jones, who worked at the Record Mirror, had said to him, there's a band playing uh, and they play every Sunday afternoon at the Station Hotel in Richmond. You should go and see them. They might want a PR or something. And he wasn't going to go until he looked at the train uh, map and he realised that the train went straight from Hampstead Heath Station straight to Richmond, as it still does. Still does the, today. The North London line. And so he thought, all right, I'll give that a go. And so he got on the train and it deposited him outside Richmond Station. He went straight into the station hotel and there's Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, Keith Richard, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts. And the future is made. All is made. And that was him seeing the Stones. He started managing the Stones when he was 19, so he probably, I don't know, maybe saw them when he was 18 or whatever. But, you know, before that, he'd already worked at Mary Quant. He worked as a, with a mod fashion designer in Carnaby Street. He'd done the PR for the Beatles. He'd done the, you know, the him and Tony Cole had done PR, hadn't they, for, the, for Sam Cooke, Little Richard, Bob Dylan, Phil Spector. Absolutely incredible. The other thing that struck me was the number of things that he'd done that must have directly affected the success of the group. And, you know, one of those, getting rid of Stu, the piano player, which is astonishing. Absolutely. First man ever to be thrown out of, out of a group because his face literally did not fit. And if you go back and look at the pictures of the six-piece Rolling Stones with Stu, you can see the truth of that. He was also the person who kind of made the Rolling Stones something that they would not have been without him, hear me out, which was hip. Without Andrew Lou Goldham, the Rolling Stones are man for a man. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in that? Am I right in that? <laughs> I really thought of it like that. Yeah, well, he changed the way they looked, didn't he? And, uh, and also the material they played, you know. And it, and more than that. More than that, the key thing is go and read the sleeve notes of the early Rolling Stones records. They're all written by Andrew Oldham. Yeah. And they're, they're all kind of Jack Kerouac knockoffs. And, you know, I can't remember which the, is it out of our heads where um, he does it in kind of Kerouac style. And there's this line about if you haven't got enough bread to buy it, knock down blind man and steal his money. It's something like that, which caused considerable controversy in 1964 or five or whenever it was. Imagine doing it now. <laughs> he, he did all that. It wasn't Mick Jagger. It wasn't Brian Jones. It wasn't Keith Richards. He's the person who gave them kind of sprinkling of chic and danger. You know, it was, it was all his projection. You know, Wasn't it him that made the decision that uh, well, uh, Keith Richards always brilliantly put the black hat and the white hat? He said the Beatles were wearing the white hats, the kind of white cowboy hat we talked about. Beatles were wearing a white hat. Our option was the black hat. But I think that was Andrew Oldham's decision. Andrew Oldham was was the one who, the architect of all those headlines, like, would you let your daughter go out with a Rolling Stone? That was him, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Talking of Andrew Oldham, I've just been talking to Peter Watts, who's got a book about Denmark Street, London's Timpan Alley. Uh, and on the cover of that is a splendid photograph of Andrew Oldham uh, walking down the street of dreams. He's just got out of his limousine. 
and his driver. He uh, looks like a, a bit of a bit of rough tray. He's, he's, he's leaning on his limousine That's down right. the street. And it's clearly, it's a complete wish fulfillment fantasy that the whole photo session is. You know, because, and Andrew Oldham was the first manager I was aware of who was a, kind of as hip as the group. You know, Brian Epstein never was, didn't attempt to be. And Andrew Oldham definitely was. He was but that wasn't that part of the whole idea, particularly behind the media, that you know, that that that, that the general feeling was that middle-aged uh middle-aged record executives were ripping off and fleecing 19-year-old <laughs> RB stars or whatever, you know, and he was going to come in at the same age as them and give them a fair deal. Well, except, you know, he, except as, I don't think there's any indication that he did that at all, actually, because most of the acts he was signed to immediate would say that they were ripped off and fleeced, this time by people wearing fashionable clothes. You know, that that was the way it went in the future. You know, very few people emerged from immediate feeling. Well, feeling Simon Spence did totally good about it. Go on. Yeah, he sent me. Uh, he sent me various uh, stats. They, they don't appear in the book actually. One was uh, uh, a detail of all the small faces royalties. And they're really, really detailed. It's all about the quantity of records, the amount of royalties they got in Australia and Japan and places like that. I thought it was incredibly little. I mean, Tin Soldier sold over 20,000 copies in Australia, and yet they get £325 for it. See, that seemed to me, which is the equivalent of what's that, six grand a day, something like that, six and a half grand. Seems incredibly little, really. Well, artists' royalties were very, very low in in those days, you know. You know, what were the Beatles getting? You know, it was just pennies, wasn't it? Um, you know, that was the, that was the way it worked. And of course, the other thing was, in the case of the small faces, that you know, all the all the uh, all the bills that they ran up on their fabulous clothes and their and their lifestyles and so forth, they were paying. They came out there advanced. <laughs> that entirely came out of their end. Yeah, you know, because uh, you know, it still goes on to this day. You know. So but, small face. Um, well, Steve Marriott certainly had two kind of episodes of that, didn't he? Because he kind of felt he got ripped off by the small face, then went into humble pie. The end of humble pie, just the same thing. They thought they made a fortune. You know, they were selling out these huge venues, they were selling lots of records. At the end of it, he was talking about the land he was possibly going to buy and all things. And when the money came in, there was just nothing. You know, and he was just mortified. Never really recovered from it. I was watching an interview um, the other day. Um, you find it online with uh, Howard Stern did with Dave Grohl. And uh, Dave Grohl is fantastic interviewee. And he was saying, how much did you make out of Nirvana? You know, because Nirvana were the last huge selling physical product band, probably, you know, whatever, whatever, never mind sold multiple tens of millions uh, of copies. And he said, you must have made, I can't remember the actual figures. He said, you must have made 80 million out of that. He didn't know. You must have made 50 million out of that. He didn't know. You must have made 30 million out of that. He said, no. You must have made 15 million. He says, maybe. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's quite interesting. You know, because, listen, it's a golden rule, you know. People make less money than you think. Oh, sure. You know, they, they just do. And, uh, and you know, they're very often paying off what, what the previous record didn't make and so forth. It's very rarely, it's very rarely a clear payday, you know, and also 
monies take years to come through. You know, it's very rarely that somebody arrives with a, with a check saying, "Here's fifty million dollars." You know, <laughs> that record you made two years ago is uh, you've made this amount of money out of it. It won't work like that. Well, REM signing to Warners. There were moments, weren't there, when people suddenly, because you're just simply doing a record deal. And getting yeah, but that's predictive. That's predictive. That's different. That's not what you've earned. That's what they think you might earn back for them. You know, it's, because, it's an advance, I guess. Isn't it? It's an advance. Yeah. You see, and this is, you know, without, without disappearing down the kind of streaming Spotify, you know, rabbit hole again. Bands used to live on advances, not what they got, not not royalty statement. It was advances. It was go and sign to a new record company. They'll give you an advance to make three albums, okay? And the, out of that, you've got to make the record tour, and you've got to do this, that, and the other. And so you got those sums of money because record companies were having a punt that you would be one of the handful who would make it in the next two years. In most cases, they never earned back those advances at all. I haven't heard anybody rushing to pay the money back, you know. Whereas now it's different because you you only get paid at the end of the day. Yeah, that was the joy about being booted off a label. It often meant that your debts were uh, would evaporate, wouldn't they? Well, it, it could do. It, Good depend, thing. It could it could get it could get more complicated than that. Uh, so anyway, that's. Uh, Peter Peter Watts's book about um, Denmark Street, which is out. And now. we should mention we've got various events coming up too. We've got well, twenty one Soho. We are doing well two things actually, aren't we? We've got one on the thirtieth of October with it's, Ian Brody of the Lightning Seeds talking about his memoir, and John Higgs talking about his fantastic book about K- the KLF. Yes, that'll be good. And we've got another one we've just announced. It's going to be a punk double bill. With Glenn Matlock and another speaker to be announced shortly. He's also got a fantastic. I mean, right around the corner, actually, from the, from where the pistols used to live. Used to live in Denmark Street. Didn't Denmark Street, two hundred and fifty yards away. Absolutely. In a house that I, I now know has been is a listed building. They preserved even Johnny Rotten's cartoons and caricatures on the wall. Amazing. <laughs> so that's and, good. And it's just around the corner from Kirsty McCall's bench in Soho Square as well. So it's you know. It's full of uh, full of reasons to visit um, if you haven't got one already. And full details are below. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Okay, welcome to Correspondence Corner. We've heard uh, <laughs> it's not like Cyril Fletcher on That's Life. Do you remember that? I am indebted to Mrs. Um, Grimshaw from uh, Grimsby for the following. Cyril Fletcher, um, did Cyril Fletcher wear the bow tie? He did. He did. He did. Yeah. He did. Kenny MacDonald in Glasgow has uh, had a dilemma, which is that he's uh, run out of space on his... Uh, is it an iPhone or an iPod? It's an iPod, Kenny. Uh, he plugged it into his laptop and discovered he didn't have enough room for uh, for all the music he, he wanted to put on there. So he says, I spent a long afternoon agonising, agonising, Mark, about what to do about T2's It'll All Work Out in Boomland. Do I really need that second Donna's album? Yeah, and what about Faroe Island songwriter Tator? His two albums are actually pretty good and remain in place. I'm only going to say one thing to you, Kenny. When you were about 14 or 15, first getting involved in enthused about pop music, did you ever think you would be using the expression agonised? 
about your relationship <laughs> with it. Do you ever feel? Do you ever feel the record collection may be owning you rather than you owning the record collection? You know, but other people may uh, may have had similar uh, similar experiences. If so, we want to hear about them. Uh, Paul Kent in Eastbourne is following up to where we're talking about the other week about people who uh, were in the light of the death of David McCullum, uh, who became a sex symbol through playing Ilya Kuryakin in The Man from Uncle. And we were listing similar actors that said, for whom similar things had gone on. He says, How about Scottish actor Douglas Henschel? as an unlikely sex symbol for his role as Jimmy Perez in Shetland. I haven't seen it myself, Mark. Have you ever seen it? Oh, yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, the guy who plays Jimmy Perez has just stepped down, and my wife is mortified. Oh, well, there you go. I okay. know. So uh, I'm pro- relieved, but that no. That proves, <laughs> proves the point. It'd be good. Uh, uh, and Don Lorimer, all the way from Bainbridge Island in Washington State, uh, in the United States, we were talking about smoking on album sleeves, and he he pointed out that, of course, Dan Hicks and his oh yes made an album striking it rich that was in the very much in the shape of a, of a which I have book upstairs, of, a book, a book of matches. matches. Yeah, and it actually got a little striker at the bottom. I've got it. I've got it upstairs. I think it's yeah, got a stri- it's got a strike pad at the bottom, which yeah. if, if memory serves, I think actually worked. But that was about you know it's about fifty years ago. Yeah. I actually heard it. Well, thanks for that. And Ellie, uh, via email, thinks it should be misogynistic, not misogynistic. Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. Um, thanks for that. Thanks for everybody's um, comments, contributions. Please keep, keep them, coming. them coming. Keep them coming, as they say on the radio. Do you know what I was thinking in the light of the the terrible news events of the last week, um, which is, Am I surprised or am I not surprised? There, are, there doesn't appear to have been, or if there has been one, I haven't come across it, any kind of music business response. No, there's been no kind of fundraising anthem or protest song or anything like that, which there normally is, isn't there? You would have thought so, but maybe I'm thinking, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But, um, you but know, also, was... this is a very, very, very complicated well, okay. story, isn't but, it? But so, so are all, yeah, of yeah, all the yeah. tragedies. They're all, they're all terribly complicated stories. And um, I'll tell you the only thought I had about it today, uh, turning it over in my mind. I wonder if, if the rise of social media has just completely usurped Pop music's ancient function as being the kind of town crier uh, over. Yeah, it was because it was one of the first to react, wasn't it? That's right. It, it always was, you know. And what pop music used to say, you know, I'm thinking about, I don't know, you know, Ohio by Neil Young or, you know, Do They Know It's Christmas or, I don't know, yeah, I'm sure we can think of loads of other examples. What what they always seem to be saying was, do you realise this is going on? Whereas nowadays, it's pretty plain that people realise this is going on. Their interpretations may be very different, but they're, they're not short of information about, about anything. No, you're required nowadays. to have a, a, a reaction to it, an interpretation of the events, rather than just announce it's happening, aren't you? Yeah, and, uh, and, and kind of everybody responds within the, the first, within the first five minutes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas... Whereas um, it didn't used to be like that. And I wonder if we will ever see that kind of musical response again. 
Because we were talking yesterday, weren't we, about Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. Absolutely. You know, know, Eve of Destruction, which, you know, if the button is pushed, there's no running away, there'll be no one to save with the world in a grave, etc. about the Eastern River and the the Eastern world is exploding. Is that the first line? That's the first line of it. Well, I keep thinking thinking about that line all the time. Incredible. And I can remember that record coming out and being absolutely terrified. I was this 11 is, years old. This is 60 years ago, down yeah. nearly, that yeah. it came out. And, uh, of course, written by P.F. Sloan, wasn't it? I think it was. It was a hit from Barry Maguire, written by P.F. Sloan. And uh, you kind of think of it, you could, you could dust it off nowadays. But Unbelievable. Uh, I can uh, remember lying in bed and thinking, you know, the picturing the kind of bony fingers of some evil dictator stretching out towards a nuclear button and thinking, you know, you know, church crookham down the road is going to disappear <laughs> in a God. molten fireball oh, and I'll be next. God. Oh, it was terrible. Really do you remember terrible. the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah. I do. I can remember having a woodwork class during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And looking out the window, I don't know what I was looking for at all. I was, I was eleven years old or something at the time, and uh, but it sticks with you those kind of things, you know. They were so chilling, absolutely, and because uh, nothing more chilling than what's been going on in the last week. Really, nothing more chilling at all. And the most chilling aspect of that, I think, was the was the terrible massacre at the festival. Okay. We can all imagine, can't we? You know, our own kids at an event like that. It's just absolutely more. I've never felt so connected with what was going on. Normally the, the events in wars seem distant and hard to picture, but that was just frightful. Oh, they all involve kids, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So coming to uh, to London this weekend, the Celebration Tour. With Madonna, three nights at uh, an O2, one more in December. You know, there was a brilliant moment on the on the Today program this morning. <laughs> Everybody listening heard it, where Abel Rajan was saying, talking about Taylor Swift's new movie, and he said, Taylor Swift has inherited the mantle of Maradona. He went on for a while. <laughs> Michelle Hussein said, I, I hadn't been aware of the breadth of her talents. I think you possibly mean Madonna. Did he say by mistake? He said Maradona, yeah. Of Maradona. That's extraordinary. And I thought, how long is he going to keep going before he, somebody chips in here? Good and grief. Says, that would have been pretty, but straight away back at the I know, point. it would have been amazing. That's extraordinary. So, but yes. there was a, a brilliant, uh, their PR firm. The PR firm that uh, that uh, represents Madonna sent an email around something to, which both Dave and I got, and uh, I thought it was really clever. Actually, it was just all about numbers, wasn't it? It's was all statistics, you know. And and it's been picked up. I just had a look about an hour later. It's been picked up all over the place. People and billboard, and I think the New York Times and whatever. It's all things like stats from you know Madonna's upcoming tour. Eight humidifiers in her dressing room. Three <laughs> traveling mobile gyms. Three physical therapists. Forty pairs of boxing gloves. Twenty-four on-stage performers, including four of her own children. This is a great one. Fifty merchandise items, including vintage recrea- recreations of iconic items from previous tours, such as the Blonde Ambition bomber jacket. It's a brilliant idea. You're going to a concert, and the main thing is not just to see the show, but to try and spend even more money buying a vintage bomber jacket from a previous tour. 
to and there's one bit about uh, Madonna is transported around the re arena in an illuminated portal frame 30 foot off the ground that acts as a time machine allowing her to move at 1.5 feet a second 80 foot across and 130 foot down the length of the arena designed to symbolize in case you missed this Dave looking into the past the present and towards the future I thought it was a brilliant bit of PR though because that's popular. See, in the old days, in the old days, if you went on about that kind of stuff, it would be seen as being an indication of absurd and non-carbon neutral, wasteful self-indulgence. And now it's kind of, it's this is what this is value for money. This is what you're paying for. Well, this is spectacle. It's certainly what you're paying for because there is no mention. I think I'm right in saying anywhere in anything you just read out of anything to do with music. No, it's entirely to do with the show and the scale, the of scale the of it. Uh, and and I think I'm right in saying there are, there's no band on this tour, isn't there? Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe not. No, no. They, they, the musical director gave an interview that there's no band on stage and she'll be singing to the backing tracks of her old hits. And that's wow. got to be it's just a giant just a gnats away from miming, hasn't it? For God's sake, surely. Um, and which was the great control with her, wasn't it? In the late nineteen eighties, wasn't it? You remember, oh, yeah. That, or was that, it that, in the nineties? Was it, you know, Madonna can't sing and dance. Which do you want her to do? Well, this is it. You see, if I went to see Madonna. Do, do I desperately want her to sing? I don't know, really. You just want the show, don't you? <laughs> That's what yeah. you want. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't complain at all, you know. And I just wonder if this is the way things are going, isn't it, really? That uh, music's a bit of an optional extra, really. <laughs> the well, Lady Gaga always used to make a very a, a, a big point of the fact that she was singing live, partly, I think, to point up the fact that. It was rumoured that Madonna possibly wasn't. <laughs> so I think that was a deliberate uh, gesture. I know. I think it's one of the things where it, it isn't one of the stats on that list. How many people are in the tour party? Is it 200 people? 200 people, yeah. 200 people. Well, we're, when we were talking to 25 Nick Banks, in the costume department. No, we we're talking to Nick Banks from um, Pulp, as we said, we talked to him this week. It's very interesting because they're talking to him about that that picture of Pulp and their touring party at the end of their most recent tour. And just to, it was interesting because it, it demonstrated just how many people are involved in a show nowadays. And I think he said there was 60 or I think maybe even more yeah, than I think it 60. Was, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, they're not tiny, but it's just Pulp. It's not Pink Floyd. It's not, you know, it's not Madonna. Um you know, because and he was talking about this this whole thing that people want a show nowadays, and a show tends to be mainly assessed in visual terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you know that's what, that's you know, when people get to the West End, they they don't talk about how how good the script is, or they, they talk they talk about the bangs and the you know, and the spectacle and the. You know the fireworks that go off and the, the the moments of transformation, all those kind of things. They're now baked in to popular music, completely baked in. Baked in also, so that people can take photographs of them and uh, and tweet them. You know, and uh, the, 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 the self publicity 
element of that is. But it's also scale, isn't it? You see, because if you're playing, if you, you know, if you're not playing something intimate, you're playing something that has to be as huge as possible. Really, there's nothing in between. Um, You know, you either get close enough to see the whites of their eyes, or you, or you get far enough away to be impressed by the massive, great jumbo screens at the back and so forth, and what you can see on those things. It's a fascinating difference. But also you've got to give the impression that you're you're doing something more spectac- spectacular than all your rivals, haven't you? Of course you do. Of course you do. Because, I mean, her whole thing is you've got Rihanna and you've got Lady Gaga and you've got um, Taylor Swift, you know, and you've got Beyonce. And she's kind of got to come back and remind people who used to be in charge. Except, so, I mean, if you're Madonna, you're touring this week, you're in, you're in London this weekend, I'm sorry. You must be looking at the news about the incredible fuss about Taylor Swift's in-concert movie and thinking to yourself, I'm done. I've just yeah. been completely outflanked by the younger generation here. You know, Because she is setting new new standards, isn't she? Well, what's the, the, what's the figure for the... For the bookings already, is it something in the region of nearly a hundred million just There's in bookings? People to go and watch a movie, a movie of a show, of a show that's still touring, kind of thing. That is touring for another year, for with another year. You've got these cities. are the people who can't get to see the show. You've got cities and countries lobbying to be included on the itinerary because of the economic boost to the locality that would be involved in having a Taylor Swift show there that weekend. It's absolutely extraordinary. Nobody's to, nobody's been at that scale before. This no. is a completely new scale. I don't think there's anything compared to it at all. I mean, Beatlemania and so forth, but it was quite small scale, you know, because the business wasn't geared up to take advantage of their popularity. So they never we got... They flying never hundreds got, of miles and booking hotels, were they? And, and going out for to, dinner. They wasn't. They weren't getting to. Do, they weren't playing places as big as that, being filmed, you know, doing shows as big as that. And Madonna wasn't either. And you know, Michael Jackson, his pomp wasn't either. This is just absolutely, genuinely astonishing. And I'm amazed she has the kind of, um, you know, the stamina for it. You know what I mean? Because she would have thought at some point she'd think, well, I've done enough of this. I want to go away and. Make a new record or make a film. Yeah, God knows what. Oh, yeah, just read PG Woodhouse. But she's she's clearly just driven like you've never, you've never seen before. You know. Well, it must be heartbreaking to feel that you're being outranked, mustn't it? God, you're left behind. You know, absolutely left behind. Anyway, uh, talking of things from a long time ago. It was also this week, 54 years since the release of In the Court of the Crimson King. To give it its full title, Mark, An Observation by King Crimson. An Observation, precisely. That was what it was called. Yeah. So it came out in 1969 and was an immediate, immediate sensation. Uh, on the basis of, I mean, it was kind of, it was the record that hyped itself, really. The, you know, the market hyped itself over that. A lot over, of it's to do with the cover. So much of it's to do with the, the cover. The cover is so amazing. 
And, uh, and you wonder what would have happened to him. It was designed by their old mate Barry Godbo, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think yeah. he died very, very soon after. He I mean, died. he did just see it come out. He died a year later. He'd just imagine year. what that guy might have done. You know, he might have done, he might have been a new kind of Roger Dean figure. He might have worked with hypnosis or whatever. One sleeve. I don't think he was even a designer. I think he was a computer science. Do you know where the uh, original painting of that is? It's Robert Fripp's got it now. Yeah. He repossessed it from his management office where they'd left it in the sunlight. Apparently. That's right. <laughs> so it rather faded. Um, but yes, he's... See, I, I, wouldn't you like to see that? It's funny. We've all seen the Mona Lisa, Dave. You know, we've seen Girl with a Pearl Earring. We've seen The Birth of Venus. Would you or would you not be slightly more moved by seeing the original of that cover? Oh, my God. Do you know See, what I mean? Because it's just why, got, I've got a connection the, with it. Why has nobody done that? At an art gallery yeah. doing an exhibition of the original artworks for loads of of legendary covers. I suppose because it they're would lost. They're lost, aren't they? I mean, does the Sergeant Pepper original exist no it doesn't I mean, well no that was a set though wasn't it it was a set and then they photographed it yeah and then they uh, took the set down so it's not it's not there you you can't do that i can't think of it you know dark side of the moon same thing really you know they all this stuff just got just got put in a in a folio afterwards and carried home by Cat the Stevens, the Cat Stevens, the Joni Mitchells. Oh, maybe paintings. Yes, Joni Mitchell paintings. You could certainly Nick you, Mason's relics. I don't know. There are a few, aren't there? I suppose so. Yeah, there but are I mean, it'd few. be very hard to to get them all together. But it would be very exciting. Self portrait by Bob Dylan. It'd be very exciting to be in the same room as the actual original artwork. Yeah, I'm sure. A lot what of a good idea. Say that. Um, but anyway, so King Crimson, I mean, unique thing in that, you know, it's um, it's a record that genuinely sold on the basis of its cover and its cover alone. And people, people later said that they kind of, well, it perfectly reflected the music. I'm not so sure if it's like that. I think what happens is it kind of the music grows to reflect the cover <laughs> because you just spend in those days, you spend hours looking at the cover. And so the music became like a soundtrack to the cover. Yeah. Rather than the cover being the illustration that lifted the music. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, to me, the music of the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, sounds like that cover looks. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's it's a fascinating relationship between between the artwork and the, and the sound, isn't it? And it only exists in the world of the 12-inch LP. It doesn't exist in any other world at all. You and know, also it was a first album that didn't have, it didn't have the name of the band on it. It didn't have the name of the of the record on it, did it? Did it have anything on the cover at all? I don't think it did. It's just the question. picture. No, uh, yeah. So that in itself, I remember, as being pretty astonishing. They, they, yes. A group you've and, never heard of. And so the mystery about them just grew. No, but I think, I think at the time UK came out, he had heard of them because they they were just they were everywhere in 1969 they were everywhere they supported the rolling stones at um, hyde park at hyde park you know there were ads taken in the music papers where the likes of pete townsend were talking about how amazing it was and so if you were kind of in the in the market for a record like that you knew all about it 
you really knew all about it. And also not that many records came out. So you go to your local record shop, and the way that Ireland just promoted it was they just handed out loads of spare covers to record shops. And they stuck them in the window. And they just stuck them in the window. I remember so that. They were all over the windows. And um, I think it was Will Birch was sent me a tweet this week when I was talking about it. He said that Rhett Davis, who later went on to produce Roxy Music, he used to be the manager of some record shop, some Harlequin, I think, in the West End. And he got a load of these covers and arranged them in the window, and he placed a joint in the, in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, we were amused. Oh, that was of the moment, oh, wasn't it? Oh, God, it was of the moment, definitely. What um, wild and crazy guys we were. But here's the other thing about King Crimson, that, well, they're still going, really, aren't they? Or are they just oh, it's very much still going, yeah. Okay, it's still going. They never made a record bigger than that, did they? Did they? So it's did been they? a very gradual decline ever since. <laughs> it's, talk about manager decline. They all, they all say this in business. You say this in the world of magazines. You say you, you can make a fortune out of a declining title because, you know, and this happens, it used to happen in the world of magazines. Forgive me for a moment while I wax nostalgic. If a magazine had taken years to build up its subscription base, it would take a long time for that subscription base to go away. Melody Maker being the best example. No, not a subscription title at all. No, tend ten it down on monthlies. Well, sorry, in terms of its reputation, really. I'll yeah. tell you the classic case of this. Matt Snow, our old colleague Matt Snow, told me this years ago that he once, after he ceased working with us, he did a variety of jobs. And one of them was, he was at Haymarket, who published the gramophone. And the gramophone was the, and still is, the kind of classical music Bible, you know, strong on reviews, all these kind of things. And he said, he told me that at any given time, 10% of the subscribers to the gramophone were dead. <laughs> because... Because they were very often, you know, they were retired, retired headmasters, they say they were, right? And when they died, their widows just couldn't face cancelling the subscription. So it kept coming for a year or so, and then they'd slowly, they'd, they'd, um, they'd, they'd stop the subscription. Well, such a big part of your life. Exactly. Absolutely. So that's managed decline. You can, you can carry on. Making money and making money out of something, as even though its popularity is declining, because the intensity of its popularity amongst a declining number of people grows. Therefore, they spend more money on the product. You know, so people who go and see King Crimson nowadays may not be quite as legion as they were in 1970, but they're spending a lot more money to do it. Well, I went they? to see them whatever it was seven or eight years ago, I think, in London, and uh, and of course, what was the last song they played? Had to be 21st, 21st century. century skizzard. Skizzard, so not only are you managing a decline, you're also ending with the song pretty much the first song. Well, you started. <laughs> you started with it. God, not God. that any of them minded because it's still fantastic. Absolutely. Best of luck to them. Yeah. Best of luck to them. They've done it brilliantly. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Yeah.